Good morning. If you would please take your copy of God's word and open up to Exodus chapter 20. If you don't have a Bible in the Pew Bible, it's on page 61. I'll be reading Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 6, and then I'll skip down and I'll pick back up in verse 22 and I'll read to the end of the chapter. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus "Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourself that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. An altar of earth shall you make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up five steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. This is the word of the Lord. We come this morning to Exodus chapter 20, and uh, like the Israelites in the Sinai wilderness, we're going to camp out here for a while. If there was such a thing as an Old Testament highlight reel, then no doubt um, things like the Exodus, uh, the Red Sea crossing, would be on it, but certainly somewhere in the top three would be the Ten Commandments. Uh, Along with the Lord's Prayer and the Apostles' Creed, uh, the Ten Commandments is one of the legs in what has classically been thought of as the tripod of Christian instruction. Uh, These are the essentials of the Christian faith, so to speak. And it's interesting, too, isn't it, just how many of the high points of the Bible storyline, the the peaks, if you will, take place on mountains. Have you ever thought about that? Uh, Abraham's near sacrifice of of Isaac on Mount Moriah, the burning bush on Mount Horeb, uh, the transfiguration, and, of course, the highest peak of all, the Mount of Calvary. When, when you come to these mountaintop experiences in scripture, you can't help but feel that you're on high and holy ground. So I think it'll be good for us to stop for a while here at Sinai to take a closer look at these Ten Commandments. These ten words, as they have come to be known, as they're sometimes referred to in scripture. And in keeping with that, we have the term, the Decalogue. The Decalogue, Um, Deca, the prefix there referring to ten, and then Logue, uh, coming from the Latin for words, ten words. 
there are 10 of these words or commands. Everyone agrees about that, but there's considerable disagreement as to how to count them, if you can believe it. Maybe you just took that for granted. Um, for, but for example, some people take the, the preamble in verse two, they take that as one of the, the words. And then um, Roman Catholics and Lutherans believe that verses three to six are one command. And then to come up with 10, they uh, split verse 17 into two different commands. So one of the, the commands there is to not covet your neighbor's house. And then the next command is not to covet your neighbor's wife, etc. Okay, so lots of, lots of different um, ideas as to how we should take these, how we should count them. Uh, I follow the, the classical Reformed Protestant enumeration of these Ten Commandments, although I can certainly see how others would lump verses 3 to 6 into one command. And I'm happy to see them as two separate commands, but you'll notice that I'm covering them here today together. Okay, because they're, uh, I agree that they're very, very closely connected. Now, these uh, Ten Commandments are such a significant stop along the way, the storyline of Scripture, that um, it would certainly warrant a, a huge, long introduction. There's all kinds of things that I'd love to be able to share with you and try to work out with you about the Ten Commandments in general, uh, their form, their function, their structure. Most uh, pressingly, I think, is the question that is on all of our minds, which is, um, how do these commands, which are given to a certain people at a certain time in redemptive history, how do they apply to us as New Testament, New Covenant Christians? These are all very, very good questions, but I've chosen not to get into that um, as part of a long introduction this morning to the Ten Commandments. I hope instead to be able to cover some of those questions kind of as we encounter them in the, the text. Um, I, my interest here is, even though all of those things are very interesting and I love talking about them, my, my main interest is in diving into the text. And that's what I want to spend our time on. We're going to look at uh, the first two commandments depending on how you're counting. And uh, we'll look at them under three R's. We'll see the regulations, the reasons, and the rewards. Let's see first the regulations. Regulations, I wonder if when you hear me say that word that your guard goes up or maybe your eyelids go down because we don't like regulations, do we? There's something in us that that really resists regulations. We even hate the way they look, you know, like in a list, you know, they're always enumerated. We don't like that stuff. And we especially hate what they require of us. We find that they cramp our style. They threaten our autonomy. But if we're already feeling that way, then, you know, just at the mere mention of the word regulation, then it's clear that we've forgotten the necessary preparation that we went through last week. Last week we saw as the Lord, the lawgiver, prepped his people by meeting with them in the most memorable sort of way. 
And in that encounter, the Lord reminded them who he was and what he had done for them. The Lord reminded the people also who they were now uh, that he had set his affection and his attention on them. He reminded them that they were now his treasured possession, that they were now a holy nation, that they were a kingdom of priests. But that, that meeting on that mountain was also a vivid reminder of God's holiness and of the people's comparative sinfulness. That was necessary preparation for the giving of these commandments because you say, Lord, a holy nation. Sure, I, I get that, but, but to even approach the Lord, these people had to cleanse themselves and even their cleansing didn't even seem to be adequate. The Lord had them double check and triple check. They, and, and then even when they're cleansed, they have to remain at a safe distance if they were to even approach too far or break out through the Lord God in his holiness and his righteousness would break out against them. And before they know it, they're covered in this thick, dark cloud that can almost be felt. And they're hearing loud trumpet blasts that get louder and louder as the Lord draws nearer and nearer. They're trembling. The mountain is trembling. And the point of all of this is that God is holy and we are not. And this is what holiness looks like. And then the Lord begins to speak. And I suppose it's more accurate to say that the voice of the Lord began to thunder as he sets forth his law. And the reason he sets forth his law is because this is what holiness looks like. He's outlining for the people if the, it, the fact that since they're the Lord's possession, since, since they're going to be a holy nation, if this people is the Lord's, and doesn't verse 2 affirm that, it says the Lord, your God. That's just a marvelous statement that something like that could be said, that this God is their God. But if this God is their God, if they're his treasured possession, if they're going to be a holy nation, then they need to know what holiness looks like. And there is probably no better primer on holiness than the Ten Commandments. So after that review, are you, are you ready? Are you re-prepared for the giving of the law? Can you say with the Israelites, yes, Lord, all that the Lord speaks, we will do. If so, here's commandment number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I suppose that when they heard this, the, the people might have thought something like, well, yeah, I'm sure they didn't say duh, but they were probably thinking that's a no-brainer. Just like for, for most people on their wedding day, it's a, it's a no-brainer to vow to, to have and to hold their spouse from this day forward and forsaking all others to, to be faithful as long as they both shall live. It's, it's a no-brainer to say, I do, when he looks so handsome and when he's been so kind and how, you know, after he's romantically brought you to himself, beating out all of the competition. You, you, can, you can easily make vows to a, a groom like that. In the same way, consider what a strong and a handsome and a 
powerful God this is, thundering this command from Mount Sinai. Consider how powerfully and lovingly he brought the people out of Egypt to himself, determining that, that he would be their God. And then consider what he did to beat out all of his rivals, how through the ten plagues, Yahweh soundly defeated, actually put to open shame, all of the pretend gods of Egypt. How he, how he just triumphed over them, beating them at their own game. Who would ever be tempted to, to worship Hopi, the Egyptian god of the Nile, after his, his realm was contaminated totally by blood in an instant? Who, who would, who's going to be bowing down to Heket, the Egyptian fertility goddess who had the head of a frog, after seeing frogs multiplying out of control and then dying and rotting in huge piles? Who's going to worship those gods? It, it's a no-brainer at this point. And it, it also seems like a no-brainer because there are no other gods. Right? We, we can... We understand that from the, the fuller testimony of Scripture, that these, these gods actually don't even exist. How can you have another god before Yahweh when no other god actually has any kind of existence? If someone, if someone was to give you a, a list of regulations, and the first one was, don't give yourself to any aliens, I'm sure you'd think, okay, no problem. Done. Because there's no such thing as an alien. But not so fat, fast here because that fact that aliens don't exist has never stopped people from believing in aliens. Okay, it hasn't stopped people from seeing aliens. It hasn't uh, stopped people from, you know, making shirts or signs declaring their allegiance to aliens ahead of an expected encounter. The, fa the fact that aliens don't exist has not prevented people from drawing pictures of them. And that leads us to the second regulation. Thou shalt not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You know, uh, humanity has such a, we, we have such a hard time with the, the spiritual realm, okay? The metaphysical. We, we much prefer to, we, we do a lot better with things that we can use our five senses on, okay? We want, we want a God, for example, that we can see and touch and smell and all of the rest. We want a God that we can manipulate and I don't just mean that in the, the literal term of that word, the literal sense where you're actually using your hands on that God. I mean, we prefer a God that we can manipulate, which means that we can control and, and domesticate. When we make gods, they are, by definition, beneath us. The, the, the one who makes something is greater than the thing that is made. And and that, when it comes to gods, that is exactly our style because as Jason prayed a few minutes ago, the greatest idolatry is actually the idolatry of self. Um, 
but I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit. Now, the second commandment would certainly apply to Yahweh. And so what I mean by that is it is definitely forbidden to make any image or likeness of the one true and living God. Because anything that you could possibly make and say, this is God, well, that would be a lie, wouldn't it? Because, first of all, God is spirit. He, he cannot, he must not be reduced to a physical something. And that something certainly must not be a likeness of anything that God has created, like, say, a sun or a cow. Okay, you don't represent the creator with one of his creatures. That's, that's a massive category mistake. Not to mention a huge slap across the face of the one that you're ostensibly worshiping. You're, you claim to be worshiping God in the form of one of his creatures, like a, a cow? What a demotion. What, what a, a lie. So yes, this, prohibi- uh, this uh, regulation here certainly prohibits making any kind of images of the one true God. Now, there's a lot of debate as to whether the second commandment prohibits any depictions of Jesus. Um, Though I was far too young to know it at the time, that debate was was actually going on 40 years ago when I was a toddler. Okay, in our our church nursery, there was this uh, picture of Jesus in the corner with a child on his knee. And I know... I've come to find out a little bit after that point, I know for a fact that my parents would have strongly objected to that picture because no such pictures of Jesus were allowed in our house. But but my dad was also the pastor of that church. And uh, as I look back on it now, I can I can kind of get inside of his head and uh, and understand that he was probably thinking at the time, I've got way bigger fish to fry than to tangle with the nursery director over this picture. Uh, recently on the Babylon Bee podcast, uh, Pastor Vody Bauckham, a, a, a man that we all, or many of us appreciate, he said that he doesn't watch The Chosen. And when they asked him why not, Vody said, quote, 2CV, man. 2CV, man. Now, i got to translate that because most of us are not as cool as Pastor Vody. But 2CV means second commandment violation. I, I didn't know that either until he said it. But that's pretty cool, 2CV. So f- for, for um, Bauckham, the, the logic is, is pretty clear. Okay, He says, God must not be depicted. Jesus Christ is God, therefore, Jesus Christ must not be depicted. And that is certainly a a valid position to hold. And I would just note that guys like Vody Bauckham, guys like my own father, and nearly all of my favorite pastors hold to that position. And, um, well, you can leave it at that. I, that, that is the position of, if, if you had to point, it, point to it, that is the position held by most uh, reformed people 
over the course of history. But I'm standing here before you saying, I'm not so sure. I, I'm not so convinced of, of those arguments. And that's because I think that the incarnation changes everything. Jesus took on flesh. Je he now has form and physicality, and he has that for the rest of eternity, albeit glorified. And I, it's not hard for me to imagine that if iPhones were invented 2,000 years ago, people would have snapped photos and taken videos of Jesus. And I can't imagine that Jesus would make them delete those materials off of their phone. Okay, I, I realize I'm speculating here. Of course, there are no pictures of Jesus. And it, it, it just so happens that I do object to most depictions of the Lord Jesus, but not on 2CV grounds, but on aesthetic grounds, first of all. For starters, he's often far too white. And then secondly... He, he's almost always far too effeminate. For example, if there ever was a visitor to my childhood church and they knew nothing about the Bible, they knew nothing about Christianity, and they were dropping off their kids in the nursery, they might have looked up at that picture and thought that it was just a nice, you know, chromolithograph of a mother in blue and white holding on to her baby. Those are just my two cents on a very uh, debatable question. I say debatable, but actually, as I said, in the Reformed tradition, it's, it's pretty much a settled question. I, I just happen to be the oddball who's not totally convinced by, by those sorts of arguments. So I thought I would just be honest and tell you that. But I think what's pretty clear is that this second commandment is not prohibiting art, if I could put it that way. If, if we took these words literally, then painting and pottery and sculpture, any kind of representation of any, anything in heaven or on earth or under the earth, creatures, animals, fish, if we're taking the, the words extremely literally, then none of that is fair game. If that's the case, then both of my grandmothers, who had at their kitchen sinks uh, ceramic frogs with open mouths waiting to receive a, a sponge, uh, both of my grandmothers would be two CVs. But, but the structure and the syntax of this sentence lets you know specifically what the Lord is prohibiting. Look at verse 5 again. What he's prohibiting is the making of images in order to bow down to worship them and serve them as gods. So we're not talking about just ceramics here. We're talking about service. The question is, who are you going to worship? These people have been freed to worship. They've been freed from their forced service to Egypt They've been freed to something, which is a, a loving service of their redeemer. And what a travesty it would be to trade that in. 
to exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. That would be unthinkable. And as I said at the outset, these these two commandments seem like no-brainers. But the Lord knows us so much better than we know ourselves. He knows, for example, that this people, they've been in Egypt for something like 10 generations. And they've been immersed in a culture that is just rife with idolatry. There's a multiplicity of gods and graven images. They're everywhere. As someone has said, it's one thing to get Israel out of Egypt. It's, it's a completely, it's another thing entirely to get Egypt out of Israel. And like us, the culture that they're immersed in has much more of an impact on on them and and us that we're willing to admit to. The the Lord knows that exposure to idolatry was a huge part of Israel's past, and he also knows that it's going to be a huge part of their future. As they move uh, move their way towards the promised land, they're going to be interacting with other people groups And they're going to be attracted to the novelty of those other people groups. They're going to be drawn to their gods and their idols. And the temptation will be for these people to adopt those things, to to either to follow those foreign religions fully, or something that's, uh, that's more insidious and more common, to integrate parts of that idolatry into the worship of Yahweh. The Lord knows this. The Lord knows that temptation is going to come from cultural influence. But he, he also knows that probably even more powerful than that external kind of cultural pressure is the internal pull that all of us have for idolatry. And so John Calvin has famously said that the human heart is an idol factory. We're just cranking these things out. We've all been designed to to worship and serve our creator, but we find him too too far off. We, We find that way too much faith is required to believe in him. It would be easier for us, we reason, if we could see God. Moreover, we find the, the real God to be too demanding, too restrictive. And so we're prone to turn to other gods, gods that we can hold in our hands, gods that don't speak. It's annoying to have a God speak to you, we think, in our rebellion and sin. And so we create idols in our image and our likeness. We give form to the figments of our imagination of what we think an ideal God should be. And lo and behold, it ends up being quite a bit like us and what what our natural sinful selves would want. So when we hear these two commands, um, the two regulations, well, first of all, the Israelites, they must have thought, and, and we certainly think, of course, Lord, yes, obviously. Uh, these are a bit unnecessary, don't you think? Could have been called the eight commandments. You could have just left that off the list. But, But this is how well the Lord knows humanity. I'm, I'm struck by the resumption of these commands in verse 22 and 23. 
it's almost like the Lord understands that Israel needs to hear this again and again. He says there, you've seen for yourselves that I've talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me. And by the way, I think that's what the Lord means by you shall have no other gods before me. The idea, you know, literally before my face, in my presence, um, to be with me, to rival me. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourself gods of gold. And the people, again, probably would say, oh, of course, of course not, Lord. Perish the thought. But as, as Jason alluded to in his prayer, even as the Lord is speaking these words, what are the people doing? We'll see this when we come to Exodus 32. <laughs> they're melting down their jewelry to form a golden calf, and they're prostrating themselves in front of it and saying, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. That is such a, a sobering story. And the right move for us is not, how could they be so stupid? The, the correct thought is, I get it. I, I have an idolatrous heart. And in our particular time and culture, we might not have the same inclination to carve out idols out of wood or gold, but this is not, I submit to you, because our civilization is more civilized, more advanced. No, I, I suggest that our culture is more primitive. A, a more advanced society, it seems to me, would construct actual images in an attempt to justify and, and concretize their loyalties. We, we're so primitive that we don't even need that. We, we can just worship the, the figments of our own imagination, abstract entities. An idol, whether it's, it's an image or, or simply an imagination, is basically a God substitute. It's something that we elevate. It's, it's, a, it's a created something, usually, it ends up being a good gift that God has given to us, and we latch on to it, and we elevate it to a place of ultimacy, and it's one, we elevate it so high as we put it before the face of God. And actually what we're trying to do is to bump God off of his throne and put that thing there. So we, bump, we displace God off of his rightful place in our hearts, on his throne, so that we worship and serve that thing in God's place. And when I say that thing, friends, that could be anything. It could be anything. You name it, we'll bow down to it. We have bowed down to it. It could be money. Your, your God very well might be mammon, which is uh, an interesting way that uh, people of old referred to money. Uh, it's a very picturesque, it's a very personal kind of way, and it really communicates the idea that this is a God that we worship. That might be your God. It might be sex. It might be success. It might be a good name. The, the thing that's most important to you is that people think well of you. It might be power. 
It might be your children. It might be your girlfriend, you know, just having a relationship. It might be, you, you might be pursuing with all of your heart and energy, your own comfort, your own pleasure. And as, as I've been suggesting, if we were to do the old Scooby-Doo move on any of these, if we could pull the mask off of these villains, what we'd find is that we're looking at pictures of ourselves. We are the gods that we worship. We are our own god substitutes. So what is it for you? What, I'm asking you honestly, what, what is it for you? What are you prone to worship in the place of God? What is the thing that you are giving yourself fully to? And it's right that you would get really personal here. You, you know this as well as I do, that usually I am pointing out to you the, the corporate nature of many of the commands of Scripture. You know, the one another's, the, the plural yous, the imperatives that come to whole congregations of Christians that we need to, we need to obey together. This time, it's a little different. This time, the, the you in all of these you shalls it's singular. Even though the Lord is speaking to a whole company of people, he says you in the singular, and it requires that we, every one of us, obey these commands and consider where we might be falling short. And there's a lot of ways that we could think about these commands. There, there's a lot of implications. There's a lot of things that we might be doing that are actually breaking this command. So it's worthwhile fodder for meditation. And that, especially because we don't have time to spell it all, out all the possibilities right now. But you ought to do this. You ought to think of how you might be violating the first and the second command. Let's give our attention, though, to the second point, which is the reasons. The reasons. What are the reasons that we ought to obey God's commands? Well, obey his commands in general, but then these two commands in particular. And there are a few good reasons in answer to both of those things. The first reason is not exactly spelled out explicitly here, but it's certainly true that uh, we should obey God because he is a creator God. He, he's our creator. He's made us, every one of us, and by rights, God, that gives him ultimate authority over us. We're not our own. We have been made by him and for him. He is the God with which all men have to do, as scripture puts it. He, he is the God to whom all people will one day most assuredly have to give an account. But that's not the flex that, that the Lord God makes here at Sinai. That's interesting to me. That he could have, and, and it's game over. We, we owe God our obedience just by virtue of his power and his authority over us, but that's not the flex. One of the reasons that he does give is that he is a redeeming God. He's a redeeming God. Look again at verse 2, where he says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
So here the Lord's reminding us of our redemption so that we would be motivated to obey him, not just out of duty and not just out of fear, but out of profound love and gratitude for all that he has done for us and for our salvation. Why should we obey this, God? Why, we sh why should we not worship or serve any other God? Well, because this God and only this God has saved us. Without this God, we, we would only ever know slavery. And I wonder if that's your testimony here today before coming to Christ. Or perhaps even after coming to Christ and perhaps you've uh, slipped back into serving former gods. When you give yourself to, to idolatry, to things like money and drink and applause, do you, is it your testimony? Do you, you recognize, can you soberly admit that all of these gods actually just keep you in chains? There's only slavery associated with idolatry. Only God is the God who liberates us truly and frees us up to worship him. And when we fully apprehend the, the price and the power that was required to purchase our freedom, when we realize that it's God alone who rescued us, how could we ever dream about serving someone or something else? I, I love that song that we sang just a while ago. I actually loved them all. But that one where we ask, and we ask it rhetorically, hopefully, who else could rescue me from my failing? Who else could offer his only son? Who else invites me to call him father? It's only a holy God. It's only my holy God. So the only conclusion that you could possibly come to, and it's a, it's a very happy conclusion, you can almost hear the relief as you sing it, is this. Come and behold him the one and the only, cry out, sing holy, forever a holy God. Come and worship the holy God. In a similar vein, I, I love that episode from Jesus' ministry where he got through saying some extremely difficult truths. And all of the people that had been flocking to him, probably, you know, primarily, I think, because he was feeding them and all the rest. And all of these people, by the way, I imagine left in the same way that the rich young ruler left because it was a similar kind of deal. Anyway, he left sad, and the reason was because he, he was unwilling to give up his idols. So all of these people leave just like hordes of people walking away from Jesus. And Jesus asked his disciples, are you guys going to go too? And they said, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. Friends, we happily obey God. We cling to Christ. We worship Father, Son, and Holy Spirit alone because the Lord God alone is our redeeming God. But there's still another reason for these regulations that's given in verse 5. 
You shall have no other gods before him. You shall not make for yourself an image and worship and serve it for, here's the reason, he is a jealous God. He's not just a creating God. He's not just a redeeming God. He is a jealous God. And that might not sound like much of a reason to you. And if, if not, or, or perhaps it might even seem like that's a, some sort of character flaw on the Lord. And if you're thinking any of those things, then you're, you're mistaken and you don't understand jealousy. Jealousy is a bit like anger in that they sound sinful to us. And it's mostly because we only ever experience sinful forms of them. Okay, we see, we see anger and jealousy coming at us from um, sinful human beings. And we're getting the wrong picture of it constantly. We see irrational anger. We see petty and bitter jealousy. And as for jealousy, we misunderstand this word because we use it almost synonymously with envious. You know, envy, covetous. But there, there's some differences between the two. Not least of which is this difference. When you envy, when you covet, you're wa wrongfully wanting to take for yourself something that someone else rightfully has. Jealousy in its pure form, is rightfully wanting to take back for yourself something that someone else has wrongfully taken. Maybe I need to say that again. It's a lot, it's confusing. Envy, covetousness, is wrongfully wanting to take for ourselves something that someone else rightfully has. Jealousy, or in its, in its pure form, Jealousy is rightfully wanting to reclaim something that someone else wrongfully has. And I think we can see this most clearly if we just go back to the analogy of marriage. That couple who have been wed, who have made vows to one another, supposing at the reception, as they're having their first dance, some, some random dude, you know, cuts in and starts dancing real slow-like with the bride. Or supposing 10 or 20 years down the road, some other woman steals your husband's attention and affection. Well, friends, jealousy in those situations is entirely appropriate. Your spouse is rightfully yours. And when someone wrongfully comes in between you, well, let's just put it this way. There would be something incredibly broken about you if you were not jealous with a righteous sort of jealousy. And the, te the clear testimony of Scripture is that our God is a jealous God. His glory he will not share with another. Neither ought his people to be given to another. The Bible makes very, very clear and often uses the analogy of marriage, just like we've been doing. The Lord refers to his people as whores. People, strongest possible language. They're whoring after other gods when they give themselves to idolatry. The Bible can speak of spiritual adultery. That is when you give yourself body and soul to another god. The Apostle James, for example, can speak to Christians just like us, 
and say, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the, the Bible was just wasting ink when it writes that God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But then James goes on to say, but he gives more grace. And man, I love that. E even after some of the strongest language that you can hear, after that kind of scathing rebuke, which we deserve, can we admit that we give ourselves to the world and everything that the world has on offer? We're whoring after the world. We need the rebuke. But even after that scathing rebuke, we're reminded of the great grace and mercy of God that is towards us. And that leads us thir thirdly and finally and quickly to the rewards. This is very much in keeping with the, the form of a covenant, which is what the Lord has made and is making with his people, that there's blessings and there's curses that are associated with obedience and disobedience, respectively. That's implicit in all of the Mosaic law, but it's stated explicitly here in view of these commands. Rewards, blessings, and curses. And, and even, I'm even using that word reward to talk about the negative kind of reward, as in the wages of sin is death. And that's, that's what's listed first here. The Lord says there are consequences for disobedience on this most important matter. I the, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. I want you to just recognize what that word hate means. And what constitutes a person that hates God? You, and, and you can see this also in the next one, if we were to get ahead of ourselves. Of, of those who love me and keep my commandments. You might, you might be in here today and think, oh, I don't hate God. You, you, might, you might feel neutral towards him. You might even have kind of positive thoughts. You might just say, I've got no problem with, with God whatsoever. But the test of whether you love or you hate God comes down finally to do you obey him or do you disobey him? And disobedience is equivalent to hatred of God. If you, if you are a person that can just hear God's commands and the, God's demands and just ignore them and go on living your life as it is, then you have set yourself against God. You've made yourself to be his enemy. And God is letting you know that there's consequences of that. There's consequences to future generations. You know, your sin, your disobedience, if you're a parent, doesn't just affect you, but it affects your children and your grandchildren. You're, you're setting a course for, your, for the generations that follow. And likewise, if you're a godly man and a godly woman, you are raising your children in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, and you're setting a course. This is, this is not automatic, of course. 
but the Lord is, is pleased to, to bless and to curse according to our desire and our status of enmity against him or friend. You likely have lots of questions about that. We can, we can talk more about that, but just understand that God is a jealous God and he is an avenging God. You don't set yourself against this God and, and expect not to face any sort of judgment. And God's judgment here is strong. He says it's going to go down to the third and fourth generation. On the other hand, if you're a person that loves God, you ask, how, well, how do I know if I love God? Maybe some of you struggle with assurance. You're not sure. Am I, am I a Christian? Do I really love God? Well, the, the test that the Bible gives, Jesus himself gives it. It's a very simple test. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. The way to tell if you love the Lord is, are you obeying him? And specifically in this matter, are you, are you worshiping only him? Are you not giving yourself to anything else that the world has on offer, but you're giving yourself fully in service to him? Well, the Lord encourage you, encourages you with his steadfast love. He says he shows that to thousands. And understand that as thousands of generations. And so you can... We, we can actually compare this. Okay, three or four generations um, of wrath, a thousand generations uh, of steadfast love. I can't come to any other conclusion but to say in the words of that great song that we love, his mercy is more. His mercy is so much more. What a great God. He's a God of steadfast love and he delights to show love towards people that love him and this is how friends um, just stick with me for this last thought this is how we need to understand these commandments think about them in terms of love this is isn't this what jesus led us to do when someone asked him what's the what's the greatest commandment and they're expecting like which of the ten and jesus is able to um explain all of them in in terms of love and he says here's the greatest commandment you're to love the lord your god with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength and no doubt he had the first and second probably the third and fourth commands in his mind when he said that and then the second is is like it it falls hot on the heels of that and is to love your neighbor as yourself and he likely had commandment number five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten which we'll get to in due course but think about this in terms of our love for the lord and his love for us don't think of these as regulations that we're we must keep but think of this as as gracious commands that we delight to keep because we love the Lord and only the Lord and that he will show his steadfast love to us to the thousands.